Well, good morning. How are you guys? It's good to see you. We're going to be uh, in Nehemiah, but if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5 first. Okay, we'll start there and go to Nehemiah chapter 6 after that. I mentioned I love Sundays last week, and I, I just am excited every week to be here. I am totally bummed out today because I have got a cold hanging on, and I didn't want to hug you or shake your hands and share that, so I didn't get to hug you or shake your hands, and I'm kind of bummed out. So I love you. I wasn't trying to avoid you, most of you, and uh, no, I <laughs> wasn't trying to avoid you, and uh, I tried to warn you if you uh, wanted a hug, so um, yeah, we'll, we'll press on. It's an interesting thing, you know, you, you let God, this is the Lord's day, and, and yesterday I woke up, I'm like, I, this is not a good sign. I was just coughing all morning long. I couldn't talk. I couldn't. I'm like, I'm a preacher. I need my voice. And I just I said, okay, God, just, <laughs> you've never let us down before. I need to have a voice tomorrow. And uh, God said, yeah, I, I know. I took care of that. So I have a voice today, which is great. <clears throat> so those who have been praying for me, appreciate that. Um, so we are in a current series uh, of Nehemiah, and we're calling it the, a determined servant. That Nehemiah is a determined servant, and we see his story, and from his story, we can, we can have an example for us to follow as well and, and to become determined servants uh, on our own for God's benefit. Uh, there were three areas I've been challenging us to look at as we, as we look at our own lives and as we decide, I want to be a determined servant. And those three areas are in our families, right, in our church, and then in our community. So how am I doing at home, right, whether it's a spouse or kids or it's, it's maybe just Maybe it's just me. How am I leading my house? How am I being hospitable to those who would come? Uh, and then going into church, how am I doing with the body? Am I making a commitment to be alongside and with and in their lives and to pray for them and encourage them, have compassion when I see a need and, and make sure they know when I have a need that we would be prayerful about that, that I, am I uniting in service as well, saying I'm going to be a determined servant, uh, be the one of many that serves and lifts up Jesus uh, in, in a city, that we would be a city on a hill, right, as a church. And then how do I serve and be a determined servant in my community, right, the place that God has divinely placed us outside of our home, outside of our church community, but in, in a job, right, or in school, uh, going to the grocery store. We are in the lives of people, and God has placed us there for a purpose. So if we ignore that, we are ignoring what God has set up for us. It's not just the fact that we need to take a mission trip to Reno or go to Oakland. Our mission trip starts when we leave those doors, right? As we leave the doors, we are on mission now, and God is placing people uh, in our lives by divine opportunity, divine appointment, and we need to be ready for that. Amen? And if we're faithful, church, if we're excited about that, we would start the day. God, give me those opportunities, and, and moreover, let me see and be aware of those opportunities, because sometimes we aren't, we, they, they're there, but we just aren't aware of those opportunities. So for the fir- through the first four chapters of Nehemiah, uh, we had seen how, how God had been faithful to his people to supply and to provide and to protect for them. And then last week, we started uh, to see what, what Nehemiah was calling the people to respond, right? He, he saw this is going to be a response of our lives, that we would have compassion on one another and serve one another. And we talked about money last week and the idea that we are to be generous givers, that we are not to lord it over our brethren, our brothers and sisters. We are to meet needs as we have plenty and, and God, as, as we are in want, that God would provide through other means to meet those needs as well. But God does that and that we are to be cheerful givers, generous givers to the cause of Christ and to the brothers and sisters uh, that we are family of. This week, uh, we are transitioning uh, and, and continue, continuing to specify our response to our great God in the form of uh, looking at Nehemiah and his, the servant's conviction. 
It's really important, I, I think, for us to develop convictions in our lives, to live by, to guide our lives by, and even to know what, what we, where we stand before it's time to stand. Because when it comes time to stand, if we haven't settled in our hearts and minds what we believe, we will most likely fall. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. Uh, before we get started, we'll pray, and then we'll get into verse 14. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God, and we thank you for the opportunity you give us uh, every week to come here to, to worship you, to serve you, to bear one another's burdens, to pray for others, to give God to glean from your word. And now as we open your word, I pray that you would guide our hearts and minds towards truth, that you would uh, help us to be receptive to your word. That, God, we know the Word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and, God, it has the ability to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, and we want that today. We ask that you would challenge us and change us, shape us more into the image of Jesus Christ, and it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So before we get started in Nehemiah, I want us to look at these convictions and this response a little more uh, from, from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 14 and 15 together. For Christ's love compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. I want us to look at this, this because it's, it's talking about what compels us, right? If you look at the first line of the text, uh, for Christ's love compels us, and we have reached this conclusion. See, there was this, this thinking and thinking with the heart and the mind. And, and there was, by the way, a convincing that God was trying to do, right? It's not just up to us to come to, to the, with the answer. God is presenting that answer to us. And he's trying to conform us into the image of his son and, and, and trying to convince us of truth. It's your job and my job to open our hearts and minds to his truth, to be receptive to what he's going to teach us. And what Paul said is that we have come to this conclusion and this conclusion compels us. You see, what happens is when we have a conviction or a conclusion, it leads to action. Conviction leads to action. And it's not a conviction if you're not acting on it. If you really believe, we talked about giving last week. If you really believe, it is, we are to be cheerful givers, to give generously, and, and, and it t- almost until it hurts, right? It's not how, how much of my money should I give, give away to God. It's how much of God's money should I keep. If we ask ourselves that question, if we really come to that point and say it is important to give, not only uh, to the cause of Christ in our local church, but to the needy in our community, it's, it's good to give to our, our church family as we see a need. right? If we really believe that, then we will do it. If we do not do it, then what? We don't really believe that. Convictions are things that we act on. If you want to know what your convictions are, look how you act. Look how you speak, look how you spend, look who you spend time with, and for what purpose you spend time with. Then it'll tell you what your convictions are. I believe as we look at Nehemiah today, we're going to see a stark contrast to the world, and that's, that's very apparent and very important as Christians, as believers in Christ, that we would be in stark con- contrast to the world because the world is far from God and we are not. We have come into a relationship with Christ. Let's talk about the preference here because preface, they're, they're responding to Christ. They're, they're convinced about something and then they respond. Well, 
What have they been, been convinced of? What has happened? Well, it's the gospel that's happened. See, the gospel is central to everything that a believer should do and think and, and form. For you and I, that was a time in our life when Christ made himself real to us. And, and we were convinced, we understood that we were sinful. That we weren't perfect people. How many here are perfect, right? None of us are perfect. We're perfect sinners, right? We're perfectly sinful. That we continue to sin and continue to do what is wrong. And, and, and God knows that. See, when God created us, he created us to be in relationship with him. And not only in relationship, but in, in his presence and with him forever. But our sin has separated us from God. The Bible says that every single person has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That none of us, when compared to the holy God, can measure up. None of us can. And we, and we spend so much of our lives trying to. We try to earn it. We try to work our way into it. But God says, no, you can't do it that way. You can't earn your way into my good grace. The sin is there and it must be removed and not just outdone. You can't outdo sin and be okay. It has to be removed. So he made a way. He said, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll send Jesus. I'll, I'll come in the flesh and I'll live a life holy and perfect and pure, one that no one else could ever live. And the only reason we can call him good teacher because he is because he is God and he was perfect. And that good God went to the cross for us. That when he went to the cross, he spilled out his blood that we would be pure. That we would believe and have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that says you are filthy rags without him, but with him your filthy rags are made clean. And it's not a righteousness of your own, but it's a righteousness of faith by faith in God and it's his righteousness that he puts on us and makes us pure and clean. That we would believe that. And it did, he didn't, here's the deal. A lot of people could think that this, this time together, they come and observe, we sing about this guy who died. It's like, this is kind of a bummer, right? This is a, no, it's not a bummer. Why? Because the next stanza says what? He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. An, or, an ordinary man would have stayed dead. But Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the God-man. He died, and death could not hold him. So he rose from the grave, proving that he could conquer Satan, sin, and death once and for all, that he had the power to do that so that you and I could actually be with him forever. Isn't that great? Amen, right? That's the gospel. We read that scripture again. It says, and he died for all so that those, uh, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and was raised that our lives are no longer our own but our lives the ones who live you and I everyone died sin has crushed everyone everyone is separated from God but the ones who live those are the ones who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ those who live no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised our lives are to be lived for God our lives are to be lived as a response to what he's done because we have come to this conclusion and are compelled to do so. And that's a conviction. If we want to talk more about conviction, you think about a courtroom, right? In court, you, you reach a conviction when, when a jury comes to a conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt. If there's reasonable doubt, it's not a conviction. It's like, ah, eh, it's kind of iffy. There's gray area here, open hand stuff. Right? They can't come to that conclusion. But a conviction is done once they come beyond a reasonable doubt that this is actual truth in, or fact. They can make that assumption, assumption. They can make that determination that, because they're persuaded that this is our conviction. A conviction is, is a, 
firmly held belief that one has become convinced of. I become convinced of it. And it is a position or belief from which I take action then. I act out on it. If I believe my car is going to die on the way to work tomorrow, I'll probably call a tow truck instead and have it towed to the mechanic. If I'm not really convinced, then I probably will drive it and just see. Right? When you hear that knocking sound, you probably should shut it down and pull off the side of the road. Right? Flat tire, I'm pretty convinced I shouldn't drive on, a, on the highway or on a road with a flat tire because the rim will chew up the tire and just it will be no good and probably break the rim. Right? So I should probably pull over. If I'm not convinced of that, I'll probably go down the road anyway. When we're convinced of something, we take action on it. It's a response to the one. It says, while we were helpless, Christ died for us. And there was that point in our lives where our heart just melted in humility before him. And we received the gift of Jesus Christ through faith and belief in the gospel. So today, what I want us to transition into and look at is Nehemiah's story. And, and what were some of the main convictions that Nehemiah had? I think there's a lot we can glean from Nehemiah. We've, we have gleaned a lot from Nehemiah. But today, through the text of chapters 6 and 7, let's see what Nehemiah, what Nehemiah um, helps us glean. Okay, So we're, number one, a servant's conviction. Number one, makes a priority of the great work. Let's turn to Nehemiah. That would be a good thing, right? Nehemiah. I put my little ribbon in there. So Nehemiah 6. We'll look at verses 1 through 4, and then jump down to verse 15 and 16. When Sambalah, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors and the gates, Sambalah and, Gesh, uh, and Geshem sent a message to me. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal, and I gave them the same reply. So we have Nehemiah, and he's, he's been organizing and orchestrating and, and, and having this wall go forward and the, fortress, or the city of Jerusalem fortified. And, uh, and all the people were involved in this, and opposition was just coming against them day after day after day. And we have, it's not, nothing out of the ordinary here. They, the guys that are getting mad again, Sambalon, Tobiah, and Geshem, they said, hey, come down and meet with us. Let's meet you halfway. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's be reasonable, right? But Nehemiah's response was one of conviction. And his conviction was this. He says, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Now let's, let's skip down. We'll go back to that in a minute. Let's skip down to 15 and 16. He had that mindset. And when he had that mindset in 15, it says, the wall was completed in 52 days uh, on the 25th day of the month of Elu uh, with all of our enemies or when all of our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. So Nehemiah was steadfast, 
to the, to the great work that God had called him to do, and, and God continued to provide and protect, and ultimately the wall was completed, and the enemy was just angry, and, and they lacked their confidence. The wind <laughs> had blown out of their sails, right? They had nothing else to stand on. They had been defeated. There was this great work he had set out to do. Nehemiah knew uh, the work that he was doing was to advance the message of the hope of our great God. Nehemiah knew that the work was important, and he called it a great work. And the question I have for you and the question for me is this, that what is the great work that you and I are to have? What is the great work that God is calling you and I to? And are we saying and giving the answer to our, our foes that this is the great work and I cannot come down? You and I have been given some kind of a call, some kind of a task. Now, for all of us, that task is to lift up and make much of the name of Jesus Christ. Wherever we go, that we would be speaking about him, we would be pointing people to him. For some of us, there's seasons that it's different. Maybe it's in our job, that's our mission, that's, our, that's where we're to, to proclaim him most loudly. Maybe it's in our, in our home, that's where we're to proclaim him most loudly. Uh, what it, maybe, it's, maybe it's to serve wholeheartedly, diligently, faithfully, weekly in our churches. Whatever it might be that we would lift up Jesus and point people to him. right? But the call that he's put on our hearts is a great work. And, and what happens is this, culture collides. And when culture collides... Satan has an opportunity to creep in and, and challenge you and challenge me about the great work that we're doing. And he says, what does God say? Or what, is, what does Satan always say? He always challenges us and says, did God really say? Did God really say that's what you should be doing? Are you sure that's what you should be doing? And he causes us to doubt and to think, well, maybe this isn't the great work. I, I could do this and it's still great. But I think there is a, a way to look at this and say I, there's something good to be done, but maybe there's something better I should be doing. And even more than that, maybe, maybe there's the best I could be doing. And Satan just wants to pull us down a notch every time. It may not even be the difference between right and wrong. It may be the difference between good and better and better and best. But Satan is trying to take us away from the great work of God. Why? Because God is up to something great. And we want to be part of that. Satan's not going to attack you if you're not doing anything for God. If we're just sitting on the sidelines, that's where he wants you. He benched you there. He's glad you're there. He's not going to mess up your routine. He'll let you sit there. If you and I are feeling comfortable and, and really super confident in our faith, we need to make sure we're, we're checking out over our shoulder for Satan. right? What, what's he doing? What, what does he have us not involved in? What should I be doing to upset him a little more? If you don't feel that opposition... If you don't feel that, that pressure around you, something's probably amiss. See, when we're doing a great work, we will be pressured on every side. But our great work is to advance the message of God to the nations so that they would fear and revere him. That they would know who they are matched up to God in their sin. They would fall on their knees humbly before him and, and claim him as Lord, claim him as Messiah, claim him as Savior, and be able to stand again in, re in reverence and honor to our great God. People in our community, people in our homes, people in our, in our jobs don't know Jesus. And our, our opportunity is, is to become ambassadors. If you go back to that passage in, in 2 Corinthians later on today, read through that. We, we are ambassadors. 
letting people know that their sins can be forgiven, that they can be reconciled to God, that God is wanting that for them. We have a great work to be done. In this, it also helps us determine our yeses and our noes. I think there are some things that seem really, really good, and I said this, a good, better, best conundrum, right? We could be doing something really, really good, and it's, it's, we're doing a good job at it, and it's going forward, but, but you know, and there's a call on your life, and God's saying, that's not what I wanted you to do. It's good, and it, it, yeah, we're making progress, and I can work with that, but I have something bigger and better, or something different than what you ever thought in store. So you and I have to analyze that, because I've said this before, when we say yes to something, the danger is that we could be saying no to something more important. And when we say no to something, we better be sure we're saying no to something that, that we're able to say yes to something that's more important. It's a balance, right? And that balance is every day and in that call and, every, and in, in all different ways. For, for me, it's, it's you know family versus church versus spending time in the words and all these different things that are there. What is the most important thing? And if I respond to every text and every phone call, then my family loses out, right? So there are times I have to say no because saying no means I'm saying yes to something more important. And there are times I make the mistake and I say yes to something that's less important. And it meant saying no to something that was more important. And I, I failed there. That didn't honor God the way that I didn't stay on the wall and, and make it a great work. I came down from it. So determine what your great work is, what God is calling you to, what great work he's calling you to. Beyond just all of us being called to share the gospel and to proclaim the message of Christ, what is God's great work for you? And, and decide to do it and be okay. If that means saying no to something else, be okay with that if you're saying yes to the great work he's called you to do. That's what God wants for us. The conviction is to make the great work the priority. Amen? Number two is this. The servant's conviction was to know the enemy's traps. To know the enemy's traps. There's three little areas here that are, uh, or sorry, four little areas here uh, that I want to talk about where, where Satan, what, kind of his strategy, what he does, okay? So we're going to know the enemy's tactics. We need to understand from verse 2 uh, that he lies and encourages compromise. So 6-2 says this, Sambalok and Geshem came to me and said, Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Valley of Ono, but they were planning to harm me. So, so Satan's strategy is to lie and encourage compromise. Nehemiah was doing a great work, and Satan sent his minions and said, hey, come down off the wall. Stop the great work. Compromise, right? God's called us to do something, and we say, well, okay, I can be set aside for a little bit. That's what Satan wants, is us to set it down. And then come, come down from the wall and meet with us. Let's, let's talk. Be a good neighbor, right? Meet us halfway at least. We'll come halfway, you come halfway, let's meet together. That's what they were saying. And that sounds reasonable. Like, like when we talk about compromising with someone and trying to, trying to negotiate, well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go halfway. I'll meet you halfway at least. I'm not going all the way to your side because that would be bad. But what we're saying is I'll leave the great work and I'll meet you halfway. Satan's strategy is to lie. And the deception there was, and, and Nehemiah understood and knew it, their plan was to harm him, probably to kill him. See, Satan is, the, is, is a liar, and he's our enemy. And, and he sets out to steal from us and to kill and destroy. That's what he wants to do. When he takes us from the great work, that's what he wants to do. He lies and wants us uh, and encourages us, us to compromise. 
And we, we kind of buy into that. Oh, maybe God didn't really say, he maybe he really said it just for this day of the week, not for every day of the week. Maybe he didn't really mean it in this circumstance. We start to compromise. Next thing we see in Satan's strategy or tactic is uh, he's there to create division. Let's look at verses five through nine. Sambalah sent me this message a fifth time uh, by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and, and uh, have even set up prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf. There is, there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king. So come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there's nothing to these rumors that you are spreading. Uh, you are inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will become discouraged in the work and it will never be finished. But God, but now my God strengthened me. So they want to create division. He sends a letter and, and the, here's the division, what's going on. He's saying the rumors are out there. What he's really saying is we're spreading rumors. We're spreading rumors to make sure people know that you're really trying to be king. You're trying to overthrow the government. And, and when you talk about a people that were exiled and they're a remnant, and they, they're homeless already, and they're, 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 they don't have any money, they're poor. When you talk about someone trying to overthrow the king, what you're saying is, Nehemiah might be inviting an army to come in and wipe you out. So with this letter, it was not only trying to threaten Nehemiah, he was trying to, to divide the people. He was trying to create division amongst the people of God and the community of God. So they might see that, oh yeah, Nehemiah is doing this. Maybe we, we better run for our lives. We better fear for our lives. We better put down our tools and bow to the king so we don't have to, to be under the sword later on. And what Nehemiah say? It's just a bunch of rumors and speculation. You're spreading rumors. You and I do that, right? Division comes and, and Satan likes us to divide. And maybe someone tells us something that, that may not have been totally fact or true, right? Or maybe, maybe it was done in confidence, and we feel the necessity to, to share that with somebody else or to, to share it on. And that kind of becomes the focus of the day instead of the great work that God had tell, told us to do. That becomes the focus. And, and that rumor goes out and you can't take it back now. And then you hear it was not quite the way you heard it or thought it was. And, and it's already gone out. So now it's starting to divide because so-and-so said that she said that they said. And now we're all in a tizzy. And the great work is halted. It gossip ruins things. Gossip divides. Rumors divide. And, and that was happening then as well. And Tobiah and Sambal, I knew that. They said, we're going we're to spread some rumors. We're going to start this flame. But there's some kind of consistency about Nehemiah that, that, that although people said things against him, they continued to do the work. They knew otherwise. They, they knew his character otherwise. And, and it said, my God had strengthened me. This was the work of God. God, it, God is about protecting his fame and his name. Amen? You and I don't have to, to kind of do a rigmarole roundabout to try, to try to clean up what was done. We just need to avoid the mess to begin with. We need to avoid becoming part of the mess and just stay focused on the task and let the chips fall where they might because God is in control of that. Satan is there to create division. Next we see Satan sets traps in 10 through 13 if we look there together. <clears throat> I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, uh, son of uh, Mehetabel, who was restricted to his house. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. I'm, I'm kind of plotting, right? You hear my voice. It's that secret. Let's meet inside the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. 
They're coming to kill you tonight. Huh. But I said, it goes on in verse 11, but I said, should a man like me run away? How can I enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sambalah had hired him. See, what he was encouraging him to do is go to the temple. It's hide there. They'll never suspect you're there. Why? Because Nehemiah wasn't supposed to be in the temple. He wasn't a priest. He didn't have the authority or permission to go there. This is a holy thing. So to ha- invite him in there was to invite disobedience to the Lord and to the rule of the land. They were trying to set a trap. And the trap was this. Nehemiah, they're going to kill you tonight. Go and get protection. So the trap was, if you don't want to die, you need to go in there. Now, if he goes in there, he could die. Or if he goes in there, now everyone says, well, Nehemiah, see, he's not even obeying what, what, he, what he says we should obey. Now everyone's in confusion again. Everyone's divided again. No one wants to listen to him. His character has now become in question. You see, what happens is, is that sin comes in and a bad reputation comes in. And, and they did it in order to discredit him. Look at verse, you look at verse 13. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, uh, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they would discredit me. See, we don't want to be discredited or disqualified. We don't let Satan trap us into that. We need to avoid the traps that he lays out for us. He is trying to set traps for us. Being steadfast to the cause and being steadfast in the word will help us avoid those traps. Finally, the strategy of Satan is to be strategic. He is strategic. He doesn't quit, and he always waits for an opportune time. Now, we had said a while ago in verse 15 and 16 that, that the wall had been finished. The, the work had been completed. Yay, yay, it's time to celebrate, right? We're, we're excited about this. And, and the, you think after their job is finished, what they'd want to do is set down their tools, take off their tool belts, kind of kick back and relax and say, oh, finally, we're good. What you and I need to understand is that our work is never finished. And because the work of the gospel is never finished, guess who else's work's not finished? The enemy's work is never finished. There's always something that he can do. Look at verses 17 through 19 with me. During those days, the nobles, and the days of the wall had been finished, right? Uh, The nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came back to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and and his son, uh, Jehonan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, and they reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So although the, the wall had been completed, there was some, some correspondence going on between some of these priests and Tobiah because, like, oh, well, we're connected to him. We've married into the family. We kind of need to have this connection, so it's all, it's all good. It's okay. See, Satan continues to try to divide, although, and we have to be aware of that. Although we, we have a work that's maybe finished or feel like it's finished, it never is. And we should never let down our guard. What happens when we do? He attacks, right? When I, when I go home and I take the armor off and the helmet off and I set the shield down and the chain mail's gone and I put my sword down and I kick back in my tunic, what's going to happen? Satan's going to attack. He's going to have a field day with me. So for you and I, understand that, yeah, there, there are times of rest and comfort, but there are also times of great opposition. But for you and I, we need to be on guard at all times, knowing that, the, that Satan is ready to take us and devour us, and that if we are too comfortable, maybe he's got us exactly where he wants us anyway. 
These men were conspiring still and talking back and forth behind Nehemiah's back, trying to make plans uh, to maybe overthrow, overthrow Nehemiah even and overthrow the, the work that was to still be accomplished. Nehemiah would have nothing to do with that. We can't relax. The enemy's work is never over. So we see a servant's conviction. We see that the conviction was to the great work. We see that the conviction was to know the enemy's tactics. And number three, the conviction is to value and seek like-minded servants. To value and seek like-minded servants. Uh, chapter 7. Let's go to chapter 7, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I appointed my brother Hananiah, or Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem, uh, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. See, th- there's something to be said about valuing and, and surrounding ourselves with like-minded individuals. See, the conviction of our life should be to do that, that we want to look for like-minded people who will be an influence in our lives, to be an influence in our children's lives. We want to make sure that people are around us that are good character and good quality, that have a reverence for God and that fear God more than most. Because it's so nice to be able to, in that kind of company, let your guard down, let your hair down a little bit and say, you know what, I can... We're like-minded. We're, we're together on this. I can trust that what you're going to say is going to be up, uplifting and edifying, and you can trust what I'm going to say as uplifting and edifying. There's a mutual encouragement to that. It's not saying that we shouldn't have relationships that are outside of those like-minded ones, but it's saying we shouldn't be influenced by those kind of relationships. In the relationships outside of like-minded relationships, you and I are to be the influencer. You, are, you and I are to give hope and joy and point people to Jesus in our conversations. Yes, we should have friends that are not believers. That's how they know. That's how they can hear. But I shouldn't have friends that are not believers be the influencers in my life. Amen? People that don't know God, that don't love God, that aren't part of the family of God should not tell me how to operate. That comes from the word of God and from the family of God being together. And he valued and he sought like-minded servants. So when he set people in place, a position and an authority, there were people who were tested and approved he knew their character, he knew their value, he knew what they valued, and he said, you, you can have authority here. You're going to be placed in a position of authority. For you and I, as the family of God, we have to understand this, that there is always a test and approved time, that we need to make sure that our, our character counts in such a way that it's counted for a consistent time, that we have set aside and said, God's word, God's priorities are my priorities, and that's seen in your life, and it's seen in my life. And once it is, then you should be expected to be valued and honored and sought to be put in a place of faithful, faithful position and service. That, that when someone calls on you and says, raise your hand, it's time to stand up, we ought to know that it's because I've been faithful and, and, and that we're to seek like-minded faithful va- and, and faithful servants uh, for the cause. Our conviction as individuals and as a church is to call people to acknowledge their sin just as you and I have done. Many of us have done that. We've acknowledged our sin and we've turned from ourselves in humility to God. Our, our hearts have melted before him and we've turned ourselves to God and said, God, invade. Do your work in me. I, I want to believe the message of Christ and apply it to my heart and my life. The message of, of the church is to call people to acknowledge their sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they are no longer foreigners, but they are family, that we are the family of God and we, you and I, will unite, right? There's the unity again. We will unite under the provision of Christ as he provides for our family. 
for the sake of making Christ known among the nations, starting right here, right in our own community, that that's what we'll unite for. Nehemiah was vigilant to count the faithful as family and to count on the family to be faithful. And you and I should do the same. We understand those who have put faith in Christ are family and that if we are family, we ought to be faithful to one another. And we all have a place. We all have a place to serve. Uh, the rest of that chapter, most of it at least 6 through 60, uh, he, he brings out the names. Here's who was involved. Here's who the remnant that came back were. And, and it's kind of this list of who's who. List of who the servants were, of who the, who the um, gatekeepers were, of who the priests were, who the Levites were, who the singers were. Everyone had their place. Everyone said, I, I don't know what I can do, but I'll do all I can. And everyone, everyone served and stepped in. And you and I need to know, we, we need to value each other and seek like-minded individuals knowing that we all have a place to serve and to raise our hand and step in. Finally, number four, this servant's conviction was to be set apart by the word and to ge- uh, be generous in their sacrifice, in his sacrifice. So we need to be set apart by the word and generous in our sacrifice. L- let's look at verses 63 uh, through 65 together. I'm not trying to skip names because they're not important. I'm skipping names because it's long and drawn out and we'll be here forever. Read the names. Go home and read the names. It's important to know. I know it's hard to read the names sometimes, but they're important. They're in the book. Verse 63. It says, And from the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, and the descendants of Hakaz, and the descendants of Barzillai, uh, who, had, who had been taken or had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, uh, the, the Gileadite, uh, and was and was called by their name. Uh, these searched for their entries in the ge- uh, genealogical re- genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and, thur- uh, and Thurmim. Here, here's the deal. Here's what was going on. And and, and there's, we'll, we'll talk about this later. And I think in chapter 13, this comes up again. There, there was this intermarriage thing going on. And this is, by the way, this is not about race at all. This is about a pure faith. This is about God's people doing God's work. And and there were, they're testing and approving, and they couldn't find and pass the test, so they couldn't be approved. So they, they couldn't be in that position of priest because, well, here's what had happened. Before the exile, before ba- the Babylonians came in and destroyed, culture had invaded. Outside religion had invaded. Outside, you know, mysticism had invaded and that it had clouded so much of what what was the truth in Jerusalem that nobody worshiped the the one true God anymore there was so much of other stuff going on there that it was clouded and polluted that God said if you don't get your get your act together here you're going to be destroyed you're going to be exiled and what happened the Babylonians came in and destroyed and, and took them as exiles so we we understand the danger that when we when we let the outside world come in and take us captive by their whims and by their worldly views, things, culture inside of a body of Christ like this will change. We see it in churches all around the world today, in all around America today. American culture, American politics is invading the church and, and, and challenging the church and saying, well, you, you probably should think a little differently about these different views now. But that's not what God's word tells us to do. And what Nehemiah said is that we ought to be pure and true and set apart that the word of God is our final answer. That this is how we are to behave. And if God says this is how to do it, that's how we're going to do it. 
because we have a faith in a God that is bigger than us that saved us from our own sin. We're going to trust him. And we are not going to let the other stuff invade and change our, our doctrine and our theology. Just because the world is compromising and says that we ought to do it too does not mean that we should change the way we, way we uh, think or what we believe from the scriptures. There are closed hand things in the Bible that we do not open our hands to and say, well, it doesn't really matter. No, it really does matter. And we, you and I, are to stand on that conviction and to be set apart from the world. And then verse 70, it goes down. It says we're to, be, we're to be generous in our sacrifice. So many people, for 52 days, so many people gave everything they had. Every penny, every, every amount of time they had, every, every amount of energy, every amount of blood, sweat, and tear they could muster was given to this great, great work. And you and I, Nehemiah says, we ought to be generous. We ought to be generous in, in, our, in our sacrifice. We talked about that giving uh, last week, and, and this week it comes up again in verse 70. Some of the family leaders gave to the project. The governor, that's Nehemiah, gave 1,000 gold uh, drachmas, uh, 50 bulls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family leaders gave 20,000 gold uh, drachmas and 2,200 silver uh, minus to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minus and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all of Israel settled in their towns. They said, this is, the, this is the cause. This is what's worthy. This is what's worthy of our time. This is what's worthy of our treasure. This is what's worthy of our talent. Let's give and sacrifice to this. It is, it is a conviction that we do that. So going back, we, ha- we have these truths that you and I must become convinced of. Let's become convinced that the great work of making much of Christ is the most important priority that we can make in our families, in our churches, in our community. That we would make much of him. We would understand the enemy is ready to attack us. We would value and seek like-minded people, family around us. And that we would be set apart from the world, relying on the word of God and be generous in our, in our giving, our time, our treasure, our talents. Amen? Let's stand and have prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the word of God that is, is living and active. God, God, it is my prayer today that, that we all would prioritize the things that you want us to prioritize in our lives. That we would set up for ourselves a great work, the great work that you have for us. And God, that we would not be distracted or, or, or swayed from that. God, help us to develop convictions. Convictions that we can stand on and stand firm in. That God, when, it, when there's so much opposition around us that we would still be able to stand firm and stand united as the body of Christ so that people from all nations would know there is a God who forgives sin. And we thank you and we pray in his name. Amen.